So it's just one week before Easter afternoon as Palm Sunday, remembering the day that Jesus completed his own marathon journey, which finished with him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now the crowd laid down their cloaks, they waved these palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, our King has come. But before we dive into the details of this story, there's a whole load in there, isn't there? I want to have a quick look at some of the background to what is going on here. Because amidst the kind of the donkey ride, the waving of the palms, we're starting to think about Easter eggs already. It's easy to miss the gravity and the drama of the situation on this Sunday, which in a few days will lead to Jesus being crucified. Now, as a Spurs fan, oh, there's a couple in the room. As a Spurs fan, you may be surprised I'm actually going to start off with a quote from a former Arsenal football manager. But Arsene Wenger did get some things right. And one thing he got stunningly spot on was this. When asked about the importance of his team being top of the league at Christmas, he said, Christmas is significant, but Easter is decisive. Now, Arsene may well have been talking about the title race, but he was beautifully prophetic at the same time. Because in the story of our faith, Christmas is significant, but it's Easter that is decisive. You know, God coming to earth in human form at Christmas time is deeply significant, dwelling among us in the person of Jesus. But Easter is what's decisive. Ultimately, what makes the definitive difference is if you put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's Easter that has the power to change your life. You know, it's so important. Matthew uses one quarter of his book just on this last week of Jesus's life, which begins today on Palm Sunday in chapter 21. I don't know how much of your GCSE science you can remember. For me, there's kind of only two things that really stick out. One's photosynthesis, seems to be (laughs) popping up every week, doesn't it? The second one, the fire triangle. So let's give you a quick test. To make fire, you need heat, fuel, and oxygen. I can see people counting that on their fingers. Great, oxygen's the right answer. These three elements combining to form something explosive. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, we also see three strands of his ministry, each culminating, increasing and combining to form this climactic final week. Firstly, it's the theological climax of Jesus's ministry. This last week, if you think about it, it's the culmination of everything Jesus did on earth. You know, all he taught, all he demonstrated to his disciples and the crowds, you know, all the miracles, all the healings, the hours spent in fellowship round the table, the journey he's been taking people on, showing them what life in the kingdom is all about, has all been building to this final week. Secondly, it's the geographical climax of Jesus' ministry. I seem to manage to get a map into every sermon I've done, so here we go. If if the slides are working, here's a map for you. It's the geographical climax, because Jesus was from Galilee. That's the area there in the white circle. And he grew up largely in obscurity. You know, he just called Galilean fishermen from around the sea there to follow him and ministered in these small towns and villages around the area. You know, that's where you'll find Nazareth, Cana, where he turned water into wine, the Sea of Galilee's there, Capernaum, where he met the Roman centurion. 
But then in Matthew 16, a few chapters earlier, Jesus is right at the northern extent of his ministry in Caesarea Philippi. And there's this key verse, it's kind of a turning point. Peter's just declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and then we read this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. If you just go back to the map, Jesus set the trajectory for Jerusalem where he will fulfill the primary purpose of his life. Luke's account says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And from that point on, he travels south on this purposeful, single-minded journey to transform human existence forever. He predicts three times on the way that he's about to die, as his focus shifts from teaching the surrounding crowds to teaching his small group of disciples how to live out the kingdom when the king is no longer with them. It's the theological climax, it's the geographical climax. Finally, it's the political climax of Jesus' ministry. You know, Jesus lived the most radical life that has ever been lived. You know, the things he taught, the miracles he performed, the way he empowered those on the margins and welcomed the stranger, the way he fought the cause of the oppressed, he raised leaders and dismantled authority structures. Jesus' public displays of these kingdom values caused increasing tensions with the Jewish and Roman authorities as he turned people's religious and political expectations upside down. And here in the Jewish capital, in the heart of the nation's religious and political life, things are about to reach boiling point. So these three elements combine to create the most significant week in the history of the world. But now this isn't just a history lesson with a bit of GCSE science thrown in. You know, we have our part to play. You know, we each enter into this story by realising it's also the culmination of our journey as a church family. This journey through Lent of prayer and fasting. You know, we've just reached the conclusion of our Bible series where we've been allowing the whole story of God's Word to form and shape us. This week we have a 24-hour prayer space, an extended time of worship, and we should get this sense we're all building momentum to this key week where 2,000 years after these events took place, we continue personally and together to encounter the same life-transforming Jesus. So I'm excited for what's going to happen and is already happening today. So we've set the stage, we've built up this, this last week, and we're going to spend the rest of our time exploring what it was that Jesus came to do as he rode into Jerusalem. And I believe the answer is found in these three images which, which depict the three sections of the story that Libby read for us. A donkey, a table, and a fig tree. First of all, the donkey, verse 5, says, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey. Let's be clear, Jesus is not trying to sneak in to Jerusalem. It's Passover festival. The city population is five times its usual size. He couldn't have chosen a busier time. Whilst everyone else is walking, Jesus arrives on a donkey. 
You know, there are times when Jesus deliberately almost concealed his identity, but the moment has come for him to publicly reveal who he is and why he's here. And so Jesus rides in being proclaimed as king. This kind of red carpet, if you like, of cloaks is laid out and his followers shout, Son of David, this explicit, um, this explicit claim that Jesus was the Messiah. John's account says that the crowd waved palm branches, which were a symbol of victory and celebration. So we should make no mistake, this is a royal procession into the capital city. But this is Roman territory, where Caesar alone is king. And yet the crowd can no longer contain their conviction that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. So how is this going to play out? Well, in verse 10, we read, the whole city was stirred. And I think this is a common misconception about this story. You see, the crowd shouting, Hosanna, were Jesus' followers. They had accompanied him on his journey. But once inside the city, Jesus is met with suspicion and opposition. They're saying, well, who is this man? And it's the Jerusalem crowd that will actually shout, crucify him, just a few days later. So let me ask you this. Is Jesus king of your life? Yes, he may be friend, comforter, helper, but is he king? Riding into Jerusalem, Jesus presented the people with a choice, a choice which confronts each of us today, that is Jesus king or not? One side of the crowd wants to crown him, the other kill him. There is no middle ground. A famous writer C.S. Lewis said this, he said, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You know, I grew up um, in a Christian family, and I've always believed that God existed. You know, I would pray growing up. Then when I was 19, you know, I was kind of, you know, like living my life, doing my own thing. But I had this growing sense that my actions did not match my words in any way. My life was quite a mess, and I wasn't kind of particularly looking for God at this point. But I remember him almost audibly say to me, if you want to follow me, you need to put me first. In other words, you're saying, Tom, look what happens when you're in charge of your life. It doesn't work out too well. And God lovingly confronted me and said to me, let me be your king. And I said, yes. That doesn't mean that it's been easy from that point at all times. But gradually, the other elements of my life have found their place under the kingship of Jesus. You know, following the way of Jesus isn't something you can tag on to your life. The offer of Jesus is free. It's life-changing. It is a gift. And it is open to everyone. But it does require something of you, that Jesus becomes saviour and king of your life. Jesus wants people to find freedom in his kingdom under his kingship. I wonder what it would look like for Jesus to be king over your life. 
You know, king over your diary, king over your finances, king over your relationships and over your mind. You know, are there areas of your life that today King Jesus is saying, you can trust me with this? And you might be thinking, well, I can do it with that and that, but if I let go of control in this area, then this is going to happen. But Jesus says, I made you, I know you, I love you, and you can, trust me. It's as you put down control that true freedom is found. It's as you give your whole life to serve King Jesus that life in all its fullness becomes available. So Jesus enters Jerusalem as king. How is this king going to begin his reign? You know, how will he take his throne? How will he establish his kingdom? Not by might and not by power, but through weakness, through obedience, through suffering, by laying down his life for you and for me. This first image of the donkey offers us a beautiful paradox that Jesus rides in as both king and servant. You know, the Israelites had long long been expecting a military king to save them and free them by force. You know, even as Jesus was arrested, if you remember, Peter draws his sword expecting an actual physical battle. But Jesus doesn't fight. He doesn't arrive on a war horse. Instead, he arrives gentle and riding on a donkey. It's a symbol of peace. Jesus is modelling a type of leadership that's completely opposed to the world's ideas of kingship and authority. Though he is Jerusalem's rightful king, his reign is one of peace and service. His rule is over hearts and lives, transforming people from the inside out. The American um, pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, sin is the servant putting themselves in the place of the king. Salvation is the king putting himself in the place of the servant. The great paradox of Palm Sunday is that Jesus comes to you as both king and servant. A king so powerful, he could command every knee to bow in an instant, yet chooses to become the servant of all, to walk alongside the people who he created to die and rise again, that you may share in his kingdom. God's kingdom is not advanced by brute force or willpower, but by the power of God's spirit working through the lives of people submitted to him. And that is not always an easy lesson to learn, is it? You know, especially when your skill and your willpower can get you a very long way, but it is never enough. Jesus models that here. He's the king who comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. After this first image of the donkey, next we have the image of an overturned table. In verse 12, we read, sorry. In verse 12 we read, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. These stories are all connected, and having just arrived as king in Jerusalem, Jesus' first piece of business is to turn over the tables in the temple and clear the place out. 
Now, when we say temple, don't picture a church like this. You know, the temple courts were this whole area, one mile in perimeter. This was a sacred place, the focus of the Jewish religious life and a symbol of national identity and pride. But it had become rife with corruption. As Jesus turns over the tables, though, he's enacting something far more profound than simply his displeasure at the dishonest trading. Jesus was announcing something greater than the temple is here. He's saying this whole system of paying for animals and offering sacrifices and priestly restrictions is being turned on its head. It's not a spontaneous act of anger, but a public demonstration of Jesus' authority and the need for a spiritual revolution. Jesus is the true focus of all worship, the one true king, the, the great high priest, the final sacrifice, who would enable free access to the Father through himself. Now we need to be careful here. This is not Jesus launching an attack on Judaism. The temple was not a mistake. It was a true signpost given by God. But what had happened was people insisted on looking only at the signpost and not at what it pointed to. You know, it's a bit like driving along, seeing a road sign for a great viewpoint, pulling over your car and just admiring the brown sign. You should try that sometime. The, the true purpose of the temple was for worship to flow out from it. For God's people to be a blessing to others, to be a light to the city and the nation. And yet it had become inward looking and legalistic. And we see this evidence immediately. As soon as Jesus has cleared the temple, we read this. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. I think this is one of the most beautiful images in the whole Bible, that once the temple is cleared from inward-looking religion, space is made for those on the outside. The blind, the lame, the children, those on the margins, excluded from the temple, but Jesus welcomed them in. Jesus' first act is to revolutionise the worship of the city. It's the end of an era as he establishes himself and then his people as the new temple. His kingdom is to exist in the lives of worshippers who follow the way of Jesus. The flow of money into the temple has been replaced with a flow of love to those outside it. Now it's easy to hear this and think, what were these guys doing? You know, how have they allowed the temple itself and you know, the system of religion to take centre stage? But I wonder if you have ever taken your eyes off of Jesus and instead focused on a signpost. You know, many good things can easily become idols when they take the place of Jesus. Your favourite podcast, you know, the latest worship song, your daily routine or your career, your position, your instrument, your table, your ministry, your fitness regime, all wonderful things, each of which is designed to point to something greater. Even the Bible itself can become an idol when we focus on it and not the person that it points to. So where do you need 
a spiritual revolution? What aspect of your worshipping life needs to be turned on its head? When the temple is cleared of idols, space is made for those on the outside. And when our hearts are cleared of idols, space is made for God to move. So Jesus, the servant king, rides in on a donkey. He overturns the tables in the temple. And finally, and perhaps most bizarrely, he withers a fig tree. This final symbolic act is read in verse 18. We read, early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, said to it may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. Now, Jesus isn't kind of, you know, dropping these two great bombshells and then finishing off with kind of some gardening advice. The fig tree is the common image used in the Bible to represent God's people. And the fruit on the tree symbolised the fruit of their lives. The lives of love, joy and obedience that God's people are designed to live. And yet on this fig tree, Jesus finds nothing but leaves. Just as Jesus longed for people to acknowledge him as king and was passionate about seeing their worship flow to those on the margins, Jesus is also hungry to find the fruit of the kingdom displayed in the lives of his followers. But there are only leaves, and so he causes the tree to wither. You know, we read this whole chunk of scripture together and there's no way of escaping the fact that Jesus is actually coming to confront and to judge his people. But we land with these stories giving us a reason to celebrate. And here's why. Let me ask you two questions as we come into land. First of all, what kind of king do you want to be led by? What kind of king would you trust, respect, worship and give your life to follow? Would it be a king that rules by force or a king that ignores injustice, a king that turns a blind eye to corruption or a king that doesn't care about seeing lives transformed? You know, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem because he never gives up on his people. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he cares so deeply. He doesn't stand far off and demand that people worship him, but he comes close. He comes alongside. He dives into the mess. Behold, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. And so we see actually that Jesus confronts the idea that Caesar is Lord because he wants us to live in freedom under his reign. Jesus confronts the temple worship because he won't stand by and watch the oppression of the outsider. And Jesus confronts the lack of fruit in people's lives because he longs for them and longs for us to flourish and experience the abundant life that's found only in him. Now that is the kind of king that I want to worship. A king who deeply cares for the lives of his people. A king who fights for you. And a king who doesn't give up on you. A king who comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. What kind of king do you want to be led by? Secondly, where did Jesus' judgments land? Who will actually face the consequences of this failed religion? Partly it lands on the poor fig tree, but ultimately and profoundly, those judgments land on Jesus himself. 
you know, the final act in this escalating narrative on Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem will be that King Jesus, though he had every right to cast judgment on the people, chooses to take the consequences of those judgments on himself by dying in our place and rising again to give you new life because he loves you. He loves you so much that he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what it was going to cost, fully aware of what it was going to take, and in doing that, one for each of you, the gift of knowing him and experiencing abundant life. Palm Sunday is all about Jesus, the servant king. And there's a poem that sums him up like this. It says, He had no servants, yet they called him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. Had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet he conquered the world. He did not live in a castle, yet they called him Lord. He ruled no nations, yet they called him king. He committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, and yet he lives today. That's the king that I give my life to follow.